Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Authors Unbound, the podcast connecting passionate writers with passionate readers. I'm Patrick Davis, publisher and editor-in-chief of Unbound Edition Press. And I'm Peter Campion, executive editor of Unbound Edition Press. Peter, you've been working on something pretty special, which I haven't even seen yet. You're working on a foreword for Danielle Chapman's collection of poems called Box Juice. How's that going? It's going well. The only challenge with that is it's such a great book that who wants to be the act that comes right before it? I just want to say, let me get out of the way. Read the poems. <laughs> the book is so good. I mean, that would be my short version of the foreword. These poems are so verbally ingenious and original, and yet at the same time as at every moment they're showing their aesthetic they're also deeply rooted in the subject matter, in this will to survive, a family threatened by illness. And it's just an incredible book of lyric poetry, which taken together is as powerful or more than any novel or memoir I can think of. There's really good stuff out there to be inspired by. That's a perfect description. And the sort of narrative sweep of this collection, Box Juice, is matched by its sister book, a memoir called Holler, A Poet Among Patriots. It reads as richly complex and complicated as anything from Faulkner in terms of life in the South and how we negotiate our own histories and find ourselves in the midst of these strange and provocative characters that sometimes we get to call our family, which is to say she's a completely brave writer whether it's looking inward to the personal, looking outward to the historic um, or the contextual. And so here's our conversation with Danielle Chapman today on Authors Unbound. and welcome to this episode of Authors Unbound, the podcast connecting passionate writers with passionate readers. As always, I'm here with my friend and colleague, Peter Campion. How are you, Peter? Oh, I'm doing well, Patrick. It's May in Minneapolis. Actually, I'm in St. Paul today, right by the river. And it actually looks like spring, right in time for summer. You know, the, the academic semester is ending up here and the great irony of teaching literature is never being able to read it. So I'm just like so excited to read some books. We get to talk about two great books today, both yeah. by Danielle Chapman, who I think is also wrapping up a semester at Yale right now. And both of you probably have a deluge of papers and theses headed your way, but I get to read maybe a little bit more than you get to read, given that I have the privileged position of not having to teach or actually missing having to teach. I don't know if it's a privilege not to teach. But um, we get to talk with Danielle today about her two forthcoming books, Holler, which is a memoir of a poet among patriots, and Box Juice, a brilliant collection of poems, both of which we get to publish this fall, fall of 2023 from Unbound Edition Press. And Peter, you, you brought these two books to the press quite happily. How did you and Danielle first connect and find these very special manuscripts. Well, it was a no-brainer for me. I mean, I just a friend suggested that I take a look at Danielle's books. And of course, I've admired Danielle for many years. And so we 
we got in touch on email and I've just feel incredible gratitude for being able to consider these books. And there's this kind of really good feeling that's like envy, except it's the happy version. It's like, that's what I feel when a book comes over my desk that I really want us to publish. Isn't that the truth? I mean, one of these books would be remarkable in and of itself, both of them in dialogue together as something really, really special. And I have the exact same feeling that you had, like I read these books and I think that's the kind of music I wish I could make on the page. So it's a happy envy or a, or a full admiration for Danielle's talent. Who's with us today to talk about these two books? Danielle, welcome. Which came first, the poems or the prose? How did these two amazing sort of twinned books come into existence? Hi, thank you so much for this. And I, I think I just shouldn't say anything else. I think we should just leave it at about what you guys just said. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that. Um, no, but thank you so much. I mean, it's such an honor to hear that from both of you. And I think that poetic ambition is a wild thing because it's so ferocious and yet it's not the power that you try to attain is not worldly. It's like you're trying to connect across people. You're trying to make connections. You're trying to move them or delight them. And if you're actually able to do that, to move and delight the people that you admire, that's just like a thrill to hear that and a gift. And it feels like you have connected. So thank you guys for reading the way that you do and for being the writers that you are. The books, they were exactly intended to be written together, but I do think that they go together partly just because they're manifestations of different sides of my experience and my mind, I guess. But I think really they're both books about how close catastrophe and miracle are in our lives. Uh. And that's kind of at the core of both of them in different ways, you know, in different types of material. So I could sort of think of the difference between the poetry and the prose as being a difference in material the way that like it would be for a sculptor or something, you know? Sure. The outer edges of it, it's, you know, about sort of finding beauty, finding humor, finding mercy, you know, whatever it is in the midst of, you know, suffering, really, and dire circumstances, but circumstances that also have all this amazement and all the texture of life and not just amazement, also like ugliness, weirdness, you know, surreal circumstances, you know, so just the texture of what life is coming out of a conviction that no matter the circumstance, there's so much that's worthwhile in our lives, regardless of circumstance. Yeah. Attending to those moments that give rise to the meaning right? reason that we're all here is to answer the question, what does any of this mean? For readers who, who can't yet be familiar with the books, they're coming in September of 2023. Holler, which is a memoir um, subtitled A Poet Among Patriots, is the very moving story of an early trauma in Danielle's life, 
having to witness the drowning of her father in a scuba accident, and then being raised really amongst military royalty. Your grandfather was the 24th Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, and that's a very rigid and disciplined environment to grow up in, especially for a young mind that is one of a poet coming into form. And in some ways, that memoir, like all memoirs, is set in the past about the present recollection. And the poems, Box Juice, are very much in the present. They're about another potential catastrophe that marks your life, which is the health of a beloved spouse and the integrity of a family as it tries to move through things that are at constant threat. What kind of dialogue is that? for you between the past and the present with this connective theme of looming disaster and the, the threat of pain and loss? How do you negotiate such personal topics on the page knowing you're going to be out there for the world to read? Well, probably, at least partly by not thinking about that part too much, you know, in terms of yeah. them being out there. I think in terms of how they've spoken to each other over the past few years, I think it's somewhat unconscious and embedded in the books. I do think probably I've gone back and forth between writing the two of them and sort of the parallels that you mentioned would provoke writing in the other book because of what was happening, sure. you know, one way or the other. And I think for me, the difference between writing poems and prose is sort of in the malleability of the material. So with a poem, the words tend to be a little bit more indelible in how they arrive, a little more stubborn in their construction or their sound, and it's often the sound or the form that is driving what it will become little bit difficult to describe, but it's often directly tied to the perception itself. So while going through some of these circumstances that we've gone through with my husband's health, which often involve a high level of crisis and terror, and then often a sort of odd access to joy that happens in proximity to that. And that's all yeah. perceptual. You know, you're sort of feeling it at your nerve ends. And so the way that it translates into language is almost like a chemical process or something. So those poems feel quite immediate in that way. So I'm not sure that I'm really packaging them very much in terms that's of the storyline. Whereas in the memoir, it's basically a memoir of my childhood and adolescence, so, although parts of it come into the present, and there's a lot of reflection on how I see my childhood and adolescence from the present. But the prose just allows you to shape it a lot more. There's some room for some essayistic thinking, where you're making a try at explaining or understanding something in a more expositive way. I was wondering if we could get you to read a couple passages, maybe one from each book, and that that illustrates some of what you've been explaining, Danielle. I was thinking maybe putting one on at Maxim's, for example, in Unbox Juice. It's a poem that is both totally funny and completely excruciating at the same time, and deals with 
some of this kind of catastrophe and miracle at the same time, although there are a lot of poems of yours that could be characterized in that way. Um, maybe you could choose one for us. Sure. Would you like me to read that one? That one is maybe a little sure. long, yeah. but I could do it. And, yeah. Okay. I'll read that one and then a different one if it yeah. seems yeah. a little long. Okay. Putting one on at Maxine's. One of those afternoons with Elon and his South Beach tan in a floor-length coyote coat and matching tam, driving through the roadblock by Cabrini Green to Jetro Cash and Carry Restaurant Depot, where we watched a man buy ten cases of glass Cokes and a skinned goat over his shoulder like an Isaac. I resolved to fill the tarnished pewter bowls with puff mix, use the private John with its dual tender vittles bowl, smile, thankfully, at Otto and Laura in the drink well, to smile, smile, smile as the Edith Piaf impersonator tinkled unheard beneath the cocktail roar that was my glory. There are worse fates than squeezing into a red velvet cabaret banquette to overhear through bulk wine tang. She knows how to program the shit out of an event. I worried over the pancake pink walls of the antique powder room, its peculiar stink of unlaundered ruffles, amid the banter hearing myself repeat the one about Lennon. Here's where he said, the Beatles are bigger than Jesus and public fury forced a hastily called press conference to a Facebook friend I'd brought in as a panelist who observed my crow-footed sparkle with grave pity, wondering what kind of batshit Betty would host salons in a precise replica of Maxine's Paris in the basement of a Gold Coast condominium while elsewhere in the city Nurses fed her husband a cocktail of thalidomide, and her baby daughters bawled in the arms of a Serbian ex-swimsuit model paid overtime to hush them when, just then, Elon crowed through the Beaux-Arts mahogany. All right, tell the guys to kill the house light, beautiful. That's just tremendous. The collision of world that's in the midst of that poem and the detail of each of those worlds through just brief but precise references that brings them all to life. It's almost a little bit Proustian how these little moments are bringing entire worlds into relief. That's just such a remarkable poem. It's also, you know, it's not a self-portrait or a poem that's calling attention to the writer's own characteristics or behavior or the biography or whatever. But I can't help it but read also as a wonderful this kind of ars poetica description of what you're like as a writer, Danielle. I mean, I think that somebody in the Globe Theater, you know, when I mean, Shakespeare like came on, somebody was probably turning to, to their seatmate and saying, he knows how to program the shit out of this play. I mean, but it's like there's the loading every rift with ore to refer to another poet in your style. And yet there's also always the unavoidable. There's always the fact, uh, in this case, of the poet's husband suffering and, and her suffering and their families through this, this terrible ordeal. 
I mean, even the detail about the babysitter that is so funny gives an example of a kind of what Patrick described so well as a collision of worlds, which is always sort of exciting and funny and also agonizing. Thank you so much. And thank you for bringing up Shakespeare. You know, I, I teach Shakespeare and, you know, despite all the pitfalls that he presents, I think the reason I go back is what I really love is just that mix of high and low. You know, and and that's this other thing that, you know, when we're trying so hard in the midst of affliction to find meaning in our lives, you know, and we're presented with these extreme circumstances that nevertheless, you still have to deal with all this crap, like all, you know, whether it's whether it's people acting petty or just like the onslaught of particularity that exists, you know, and, and then also like the capitalist, you know, just detritus, you know, the, the dual tender vittles bowls. It's like, why did I have to know that? Why did I have to, you know, why did that enter my brain? You know, and, um, but it's there and, and some part of me loves it. You know, I'm just like eating up every little detail in life, whether beautiful or ugly, whether strange, you know, I can't stop. I'm just delight in that. But then there comes a certain point where, you you know, it tips the scales and you can't hold it. It also strikes me in this poem, as in so many of your poems, that we don't just see the craft of writing, but we see how carefully you're reading the world, how carefully you're reading the room. And it reminds me of the second section of the poetry collection, Box Juice, called Anyway in Spring, where you shift to the third person and you're reading the most intimate threats to your life and your family as if external to them. And that strikes me as one way of being able to cope with them, one way of being able to give them meaning to interpret them from a bit of a distance. And that that's something that happens in the memoir, Holler, as well. You bring in Lear, you bring in Flannery O'Connor, you bring in Mark Twain, you bring in so many authors as a way of trying to read the experiences you're living through. And that strikes me as a bit more connective tissue across the works that this is a poet, this is a literary mind trying to make sense of her world, whether past or present. And is that something that happens for you just on the page or do you use that as really a practical way of trying to get through the challenges of life, the bullshit and the uphill moments? Do you find solace and practical guidance through literature? Rather than guidance, I think it's maybe more a method of, I mean, just to be blunt, pulling yourself out of despair, you know, connecting with something outside of yourself when emotions are overwhelming and topple you. You know, I think a lot of our sort of pop culture advice is, you know, it's always about going back to the self and trying to fix the self and figure out what you feel. And that is all, of course, very important, but there's a limit to it. You know, there's only so much that you can find within yourself. And the way to heal is often to connect with something outside of yourself. And whether that's through relationship or through simply 
finding an outlet for your mind, I've just found that to be successful. Uh, that that finding a way out to something bigger than yourself, which you know is also ultimately spiritual conviction for me, that you aren't going to find all the answers in yourself. Sometimes simply the dynamic, the movement of pushing outside of yourself is going to be what saves you. You know, it strikes me, Danielle, that something we've talked about regarding the poems is true in the prose, which is there is this understandable, justifiable rage just under the surface at how things have been in our nation, how things have been in your life, how things are. And yet on the page, whether it's through the prose or through the poems, it seems to me the writing is an act of grace, of accepting what is and finding what's valuable in it, even if we can't change it. That there is, in the best sense of the word liberal-minded, an acceptance and an inclusion even of the things that we wish didn't exist, whether that's the threat of health or whether that's an inherited history of racism that can run through our families. And I'm wondering where that voice, you speak about the importance of your spiritual life, but writing as an act of grace, I wonder how that has come to you as kind of the lens that you look through. Well, when I read the two books together, I thought I didn't intend this, but I see that King Lear is really the sort of direct through line because it's there in the poems and then the first chapter of the book is very explicitly uses Lear to try to understand the extremity of suffering and how in an extreme situation, you know, what role does survivalism play and what does it mean to survive when you're in the presence of real despair? And I think as writers, we often think of despair sort of romantically you know, we, we know that it's necessary. I forget what's that quote, like, uh. if you haven't ever felt despair, you don't deserve to write a word. You know, I, I don't, I can't remember who it was, Camus or somebody, um, you don't deserve to live. But, you know, so we think, we know that you need despair and we're attracted to despair, I think, as poets in particular, because we know that there's a flavor in it that is the truth. And that is... We know that, you know, catastrophe and brutality and everything that you see in Lear about man's inhumanity to man, we know that it's true. And yet, I think that I say in the essay, you know, Lear is this miracle of perfect ambivalence because at the end, you can either believe because, you know, everybody dies and there's just carnage all over the stage. So you can believe that life is shit if you want to, or you can believe that because there was this moment of love and beauty there, even if it didn't last, the fact that it was there is reductive. That's enough to string those moments of grace together and make a life, isn't it? Something that gives us hope in between the crushing moments of despair. Yeah, that was the other thing I was realizing is sort of a theme as I read both books together. 
sort of the difference between optimism and hope because military people are very optimistic. They often tend to be, but they contain a nihilism that they often don't acknowledge or that's, you know, just, I guess they found it, find an outlet through it in weapons, you know? So, you know, so there's this optimism that I grew up with that I do value. I mean, I, I feel fortunate that I tend to be optimistic. That's really a habit of mind rather than a spiritual state. You know, hope is different because it has to go deeper. You you can't will it. And so I think that's, you know, that's really, it's connected to grace in that way. Well, you grew up in a family of weapons. The ones with the weapons are always optimistic, <laughs> right? And and uh, and you found your own weapons, right? Which was the poet's voice, as you say at the very first page of the memoir. You didn't want to write this memoir, but you're compelled to as sort of balancing history in some ways. And both of these books are optimistic acts. You're writing in the face of loss and despair and challenge. That's why we're really happy to publish them together, including in a box set where um, they can live side by side as intended. As we wrap up here, Peter, I wonder if you have any final thoughts or if we should move to our Proust questionnaire. I'm just so excited about the publication of these two books together at the same time. You're having just mentioned it, Patrick, makes me, you know, I'm picturing them. We were talking about the color of the cover before we started recording. I'm just so excited to hold these books in hand, Danielle, and these books are, are going to be with us for a long, long time. What do you consider the lowest depth of misery as a writer? Oh, there's so many. There's like, there's like a whole inferno <laughs> of circles. Endless. <laughs> oubliette beneath an oubliette. I, this maybe isn't the most miserable, but maybe the most embarrassing count. When you, you know, when you reread something that you've written in a flight of genius and you realize that it is so either like grandiose or, you know, just the worst thing you ever wrote. And <laughs> somehow those two things are tied, you know, that, that, that realization. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you get overconfident on the page, watch out. <laughs> Danielle Chapman, what a wonderful conversation today about your writing and what you've uh, achieved with the poetry collection Box Juice and the memoir Holler. I'm realizing I have a hundred more questions. Holler as voice, holler as rage, holler as country location, holler as place. There's so many more things we could have talked about today, but time is going to have its way with us. Readers and listeners, thank you so much for tuning in for this episode of Authors Unbound. You can find us anywhere that you uh, search for your favorite podcasts on Apple or Amazon, Alexa or Google. We'll be out there everywhere for you to listen. Thanks so much, Danielle and Peter. And thank you, listeners. This has been Authors Unbound. Authors Unbound.